0: In his prayer, Pastor Dave said, let us see Jesus with fresh eyes. And you know, that phrase really captures well um, what we're hoping for in this particular series of talks that we're calling Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. We want to look at the Old Testament with fresh eyes so that we can see Jesus. Jesus said the whole Old Testament is actually all about him, that he shows up on every page. And so with fresh eyes, we want to see him. We want to adjust our focus to see Jesus. We want to look at the Old Testament through through a Jesus lens. We want to apply a Jesus filter, right, to the Old Testament so that we can see Jesus. So over the last couple of weeks, as we've been in this uh, series um, you know, two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter one and we saw Jesus as creator. Uh, last week, we looked in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, uh, to be specific. And we saw that Jesus is the seed of Eve and he's the seed of Abraham, that Jesus is the one to crush Satan's head, that Jesus did that ultimately on the cross, but now he invites us as the church in a practical way to finish Satan off, uh, lifting the foot of the church to crush the head of the enemy. And that happens as we follow the God of peace. Jesus is the God of peace. He's all about reconciliation and mercy and forgiveness and unity. And so we, uh, we as As the church, as we engage, as we pursue those things, while we crush the head of the enemy in a practical way. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, obviously, there are a ton of stories, right? And not all of the stories are direct prophecies of Jesus, not all of the stories are even really about Jesus at all. But we can still read those stories through a Jesus lens. We can still read those stories with fresh eyes to see Jesus. Uh, Let me offer an example. Think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, That's that's not a story that's specifically about Jesus, but we can see the heart of Jesus in that story. We can see the heart of the father in Abraham in his willingness to offer his son, We can see the obedience of Jesus in the obedience of Isaac. We can see the truth of Jesus as a a substitute sacrifice. And we can see that clearly when we see the provision of the ram in that story. So even though the story of Abraham and Isaac is not necessarily a direct prophecy of Jesus or even necessarily about Jesus, we can still look at that story with fresh eyes and see Jesus. We can take that story and all the stories of the Old Testament and tie them to Jesus and to the gospel. Think about the story of the Exodus from Egypt, the story of God rescuing his people uh, from bondage uh, in slavery. And so that's a story that's not necessarily about Jesus but it's a beautiful picture of Jesus as the one who rescues us from our bondage to sin. Think about the story of uh, Jonah and the big fish. And again, that's, that's not a prophecy about Jesus per se, but um, Jesus himself refers to that story. Jesus said, I will give you the sign of Jonah. And he says, I will be in the grave for three days and then I'll rise again, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Um, so there are stories that we can see in the Old Testament that we can read through a Jesus lens and be reminded of Jesus and see him more clearly. There's also you know, a lot of characters in the Old Testament who can uh, remind us of Jesus. For instance, think about Adam. We read the story of Adam, and Adam can remind us of Jesus. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, referred to Jesus as the second Adam. And uh, so there are um, you know, comparisons and contrasts between these two characters. So the story of Adam can remind us of the story of Jesus. Um, there's a, a really kind of obscure a mysterious character in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Melchizedek. And um, when you read the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. So we read about Melchizedek in the Old Testament and um, Melchizedek can remind us of Jesus. Think about Moses. Moses is a character that can remind us of Jesus. Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18 um, made a prediction and he gave a prophecy. And his prophecy was that in the future, there will come another prophet like me, Moses said. And when he comes, well, make sure you listen to him. And so if you go to the New Testament and read the book of Acts, Luke writes in uh, Acts chapter three, that it's Jesus who is uh, the prophet who's like Moses. He's the one that Moses is talking about. So you could read the story of Moses and it can remind you, Of Jesus. Think about David. You can read the life story of David and be reminded of Jesus because Jesus is so often referred to as one in the line of uh, King David. As you read the Old Testament as well, you uh, come across all kinds of festivals and uh, feasts and Jewish holidays, and in those, we can see Jesus there as well. We can see Jesus in Passover. He is the Passover lamb. We can see Jesus in, um, in Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement. And that was accomplished fully and finally on Good Friday, right? So we see Jesus in that. Uh, think about the year of Jubilee. Uh, We see Jesus in that. And as we think about the year of Jubilee, well, then we can celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus because of what Jesus has achieved for us. So we can see uh, Jesus in in those stories, in those characters, in those festivals and uh, and, and, uh, holidays. We can also see Jesus in the... um, Like the Old Testament institutions, the Old Testament systems. Like, for instance, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, we can see Jesus in that. Um, We can see Jesus in the priesthood of the Old Testament, you know, and knowing that he is our great high priest. Uh, We can see Jesus in the tabernacle and in the temple. Sometimes, you know, as, as we read through the Old Testament, it's almost like Jesus himself shows up. Uh, From time to time, we read about this character who shows up uh, called the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord will show up in various uh, locations and places speaking for God, and in some cases, speaking as God, right? Um, So theologians would call that a theophany, an appearing of God. Specifically, they would call it a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. You know, we want to see Jesus as the angel of the Lord, the one who speaks for God and speaks as God, kind of reminding us of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in John 1, where we saw that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and was God. The angel of the Lord kind of has that um you know, speaks for God and speaks as God uh, kind of thing. So we see Jesus in the angel of the Lord. And so, you know, in, um, in the stories of the Old Testament, in the characters themselves, in the systems, in the institutions of the Old Testament, and certainly in the angel of the Lord, we see Jesus. So these are, these are ways we adjust our focus to see him on those pages of the Old Testament. But there is something that I think is really challenging that we uh, should have a conversation about. And and that's what we're going to do today. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. So we want to talk about that today. So today's talk is going to be different, I suppose, than most Sunday talks. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. So how do we see Jesus in that? We don't talk about it a lot, as I mentioned, but the violence of the Old Testament is something that, man, it stands as a as a barrier, as a roadblock for some people, maybe a lot of people, who just really have no interest in hearing about Jesus or the gospel um, or church or the Scripture because of this violence that exists in the Old Testament that they just find reprehensible. And it's a, it's a, it's a non-starter for them to go any further in any kind of a conversation. And so we want to ask the question today, uh, how do we see Jesus in the violence of the old Testament? You know, there are passages in the old Testament that, that talk about God commanding that people be slaughtered. You know, where is Jesus in that? Is God violent? If God is the God who looks like Jesus, is Jesus violent? Or if Jesus is not violent, is he somehow okay with violence? Well, I want to look at a few scriptures with you um, that kind of speak about this violence that we see in the Old Testament. Now, I guess a a little bigger picture, I should say this, that the God of the Old Testament... um, is basically very much like the God of the New Testament. Kind, um, loving, uh, generous, uh, full of grace and mercy and and, and so on. But there is in the Old Testament this violent thread that kind of just weaves itself through the Old Testament. And I want to just show some of those Rather violent uh, verses that, that do thread themselves through the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 2. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaties with them, and show them no mercy. How much mercy? No mercy. Here's another verse. This is Joshua chapter six. The priests blew their trumpets again and the soldiers shouted as loud as they could. The walls of Jericho fell flat. Then the soldiers rushed the hill, went straight into the town and captured it. They killed everyone, men and women, young and old. How many? Everyone. Uh, This is another passage from Joshua, Joshua 10. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed. How many? All. All who breathed. Notice this, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Here's a here's a verse from Psalms. So often we think about Psalms as, as kind of a reprieve from, you know, this violence and the Psalms all about worship and praise and music. And uh, so here's a verse from Psalm 149. Praise God with songs on your lips. You know, sounds good so far. Uh Uh-oh. And a sword in your hand. In fact, look at this. Take revenge and punish the nations. So there's just a kind of a a smattering, an example of just a a few of the many uh, verses that identify this violent thread that uh, we see throughout the Old Testament. And so I want us now to kind of compare and contrast those verses with uh, what we see in the New Testament. So here's Jesus. This is Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, that's interesting. We just read a moment ago from Deuteronomy 7, you know, show them no mercy, right? And so here is Jesus saying, be merciful, just like God is merciful. Here's uh, Luke chapter 22. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When, followers, uh, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And before Jesus has a chance to say no, one of them uh, that we know is Peter, grabs his sword, uh, swings that sword, strikes the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. You know, there in that moment, If you had any misunderstandings about, um, you know, what Jesus was teaching in that moment, if you had any misunderstandings about the way in which Jesus wanted his kingdom to advance, he makes it absolutely clear. He doesn't simply say to Peter here, hey, put away your sword for now. Don't use it for my cause in this moment, but hang on to that sword and use it later for another cause. No, Um, Jesus... Jesus is proclaiming here a universal maxim. No more of this. This is not the way. Another verse from Matthew uh, 5. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This uh, eye for eye and tooth for tooth is uh, really is, is the foundation of the Old Covenant. Uh, a quid pro quo kind of relationality that is part of the foundation of the Old Covenant. You can do to another what they've done to you. You can't do more than what they've done to you, but you can do what they have done. In fact, you should do that. In fact, uh, three times in the Old Testament, there's a command uh, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's commanded it. But now here comes Jesus and uh, he says that was then, this is now, that was the old law then. This is a new law I'm giving you that replaces the old law. Um, don't even retaliate. Don't ever retaliate. Jesus says, um, you know, turn the other cheek when somebody slaps you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Um, This is Matthew 5 a little bit later in that same chapter Jesus says you have heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous so you know what we see here in, in these words of Jesus, this is, a, this is a completely different vision of what God's expectations are for his people. Really, it's, it's kind of a different vision of God. In those Old Testament verses that we looked at, you know, we saw a picture of a God who sometimes commands the Israelites to slaughter people, right? And now here's Jesus saying in this passage, hey, if you want to be considered a child of God, love your enemies, In other words, the the behavior of people in the Old Testament would disqualify them in the New Testament as being children of God. Jesus says, love your enemies. Why? So that you may be considered children of your father. And so Jesus says, when you are merciful, like your father is merciful, well, then you're showing that you're one of his children. Jesus said, God causes the son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so Jesus is saying, love like that, love like the rainfalls, love like the sun shines, love indiscriminately and with without partiality. You know, love all, including your enemies. And in that, we show that we are children of God. It's really the exact opposite to what we saw in those Old Testament verses about slaughtering people. Those Old Testament characters would have been disqualified from being considered children of God. And so again, you know, this this violent thread that we see in the Old Testament, and it's undeniable, it's there. We don't often talk about it, and yet it's, it's there, um, and it is a serious roadblock. There are people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, because that is the thing that uh, they identify as standing in their way. They want nothing to do with a violent God. There was a book written in 2008 by a guy named Richard Dawkins, a, uh, a British evolutionary biologist, and atheist. Uh, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. Very, very popular book. And in that book, Dawkins gives this very... Um, lengthy description of God, not flattering at all. And there are many, many people who would line up with Dawkins and say, that's exactly my perception of the God of the Old Testament. Here is what Dawkins uh, wrote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. There's a lot of people who would line up with that uh, thinking. So what do we do with the violence of the Old Testament? How do we see Jesus in it? Well, let's begin with this. theologians have kind of identified three different schools of thought in terms of how we deal with the violence of the Old Testament. So I wanna just identify these three different schools of thought. Uh, And I'll say right up front, school of thought number one that I'll identify is what I grew up with and what I believed for quite a long time, but I have since kind of morphed into school of thought number three. Uh, when we get there, just full disclosure, so you know where I'm coming from. These three schools of thought are three ways of, of thinking about the violence of the Old Testament. They're all within the realm of orthodoxy. There are very smart, wonderful, beautiful uh, scholars, theologians, pastors, Christians, who uh, are Jesus-loving and Jesus-following people in each of these three uh, categories or schools of thought. The first one is this. In the violence of the Old Testament, God is glorified. So this view, this school of thought says that God is glorified through whatever he does, including violence. That God is a God of violence as well as a God of peace. And so this category uh, says that it is both the Old Testament and New Testament that give us the full picture of both God's violent side and his peaceful side, and that it is in understanding both God's violence and God's peace that we understand uh, the heart of God. And so this view that in the violence of the Old Testament, God is glorified, this is certainly the most common view uh, of the church and has been for hundreds of years. And uh, I don't know this for certain, Uh, But my, my guess is that this is still the predominant view today in both Protestant and Catholic churches. The second view is this. In the violence of the Old Testament, God is garbled. This view says that God is not glorified in violence. Rather, he's garbled in violence. In other words, this view says that God is so much like Jesus that Israel, uh, Old Testament Israel, is mistaken when they ascribe violence to God, like when you know when uh, the Israelites say, "Well, God has told us to go and slaughter the Canaanites." This view says that they can't possibly have heard God clearly; his message must have become garbled. Because if God is really like Jesus, well then, how could God possibly be violent? Because in Jesus, we see enemy love. In Jesus, we see um, forgiveness modeled, right? Not violence. And so uh, the people who embrace this view that in the violence of the Old Testament, God is garbled, they would say, you've got to start with Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you've got to start with Jesus, look at Jesus, Jesus is the exact representation of the mind and the heart and the essence of God. They would say that to look at Jesus gives you the clearest, uh, the purest, the most unobstructed view of what God is like. So they would say, therefore, that the Old Testament is off in terms of hearing the voice of God. Uh, the people who ascribe to this school of thought about the violence of God would, would say that Israel and the leaders of Israel, people like Moses, people like Joshua, are culturally conditioned. Uh, they would talk about the ancient Near Eastern neighbors of Israel. And so ancient Israel was surrounded by neighboring nations who themselves were warring and violent people. And those nations, when they engaged in military conflict, um, when they when they were victorious, they would ascribe credit to their gods. Uh, maybe the god of the sun or the god of the moon or the god of the rain or whatever god it might be. And we know that those gods were not real. They did not exist. And so the the credit that these neighboring nations gave to their gods, well, that credit actually belonged to the people themselves. They were the ones who engaged in the violence. And so... Those who subscribe to this view would see Israel as themselves a warring and violent nation uh, that was really conditioned by the neighbors around them. And so that when Israel, ancient Israel, engaged in military victory and won, that they would give credit to Jehovah. And uh, so this view would say, well, God really didn't deserve credit for that uh, violence, right? That this said more about the people themselves than it did about God this view says that um, that the Old Testament scriptures are inspired uh, this the, this is not saying that the Old Testament uh, is wrong um, the Old Testament scriptures are inspired but the Old Testament is giving us examples of how people get God wrong um, and, and and that's not so much of a stretch I think because we can, You know, think about the Psalms. Um, We read the Psalms, and not everything we read in the Psalms is a reflection of how God feels. Not everything we read in the Psalms is a reflection of God's heart. A lot of what we read in the Psalms is a reflection of how David feels and David's heart. Um, You know, in the Psalms, we read a lot of David kind of, you know, working through his issues out loud right? Working through his anger, working through his fear, working through his feelings of being abandoned by God, working through uh, his disappointment and and so on. And so, you know, it doesn't mean that everything David says in the Psalms reflects the heart of God. It reflects David's heart. And sometimes scripture does that. It very accurately reflects the human experience. And so the people who embrace this particular view of uh, dealing with The violence of God would look at verses where uh, God tells people to slaughter our enemies. And so these would see that less reflecting the heart of God and more reflecting the heart of people. That it says more about the people than it does about God. That the the message of God is garbled. in Old Testament violence. They would take a verse, for instance, this is John 1, 17. Pastor Dave read this for us at the uh, beginning uh, of our talk. And it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Truth came through Jesus. If truth came through Jesus, does that mean that it did not come through the law? They would ask uh, that question or pose that uh, for conversation. Anyway, Uh, the third uh, view, uh, the third school of thought is this. In the violence of the Old Testament, God is grieved. And again, this is the one that I most uh, closely resonate with. This view says that, yes, God is indeed like Jesus. And so therefore, In the violence of the Old Testament, God is grieved. He's grieving. He's got tears in his eyes. This view says that the Old Testament scriptures can be taken at face value. So that when God says, go and slaughter, that that's actually God speaking. God is actually uh, speaking that way. But when he does so, he's got tears in his eyes. He's speaking grievously. He's hurt as he does so because... He's stooping and stepping into the fallen human framework. He is accommodating people in their sinfulness so that he can stay in relationship with them to move them along in his redemptive purposes, his redemptive plan. And so um, really what we see in this particular view is, is a principle that's called the principle of accommodation. And uh, it's a principle that we know is true of God. And uh, let me give you just a couple of examples uh, about the principle of accommodation and how we see it in God. Think about, think about the temple. We know from scripture that God did not want a temple. Uh, it was not his idea. You might say, well, whose idea was it then? It was David's idea. Um, God clearly did not want a temple. He commanded a tabernacle, uh, a tent, but he did not want a temple. So David, you know, David basically says to God, uh, I'm a king. And as a king, I have a palace. All my king friends have palaces. God, you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. So I want to build you a palace. I want to build you a big temple. And God said, David, I don't want a temple. David said, oh, yeah. I'm building you a temple. God says, no, I don't want a temple. I'm happy with a tabernacle with a tent. I don't want a temple. And David says, oh, I, I, I wanna build you a temple. And finally, God says, okay, we'll go with a temple. And God stoops and uh, accommodates David uh, in this uh, desire, which is not God's desire for a temple. But when God says yes, when God accommodates, well, he jumps in with both feet. And so he says, here's how this is going to look. I'm going to to give you the plans for the temple. I'm going to decide who builds the temple. David, it's not going to be you. You've got blood on your hands. Uh, You're violent. Uh, It's going to be your son Solomon who's actually going to build the temple. And when Solomon builds the temple, I'll show up. I'll bless it uh, with with the, with the, the, the presence of my glory. My glory will be manifested in this temple. Even if you think about Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus during his ministry, you would have to say that Jesus had real passion for the temple. Um, On one occasion, Jesus said, uh, my father's house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And Jesus was very passionate in that moment, actually kicking over some tables as we uh, remember that story. Jesus really cared for the temple. And so it's a, it's a pretty uh, fascinating thing to think that God never wanted the temple in the first place. But once God said yes, once God said okay, he wholeheartedly throws himself into it. It's the same thing with kings. If you read like in 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, you know, the, the people of Israel say to God, We want a king like all the other nations. God says, No, Israel again says, We want a king like the other nations. We're sick and tired of, of, of uh, you know, when, when people come from other countries to visit and they say, Where's your king? We're so embarrassed. Uh, to have to say, well, our king is invisible. He's in heaven. You can't see him. So God, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king who's tall and handsome with a robe and a crown and a chariot and all the paraphernalia of royalty. In fact, we've got our eye on Saul. We think he'd be fantastic. God says, no. God says when you, you can have prophets, you can have judges, but when it comes to the office of king, you've got one king and it's me. And God did not want... Israel to have a human king. But the people were relentless. Then they go to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, Samuel, we want a king like the other nations. Samuel says, no. The people uh, say, again, you know, give us a king. Give us a king. Samuel goes to God and says, God, these people are driving me crazy. They want a king. And finally, God says, Samuel, give them what they want. He says, okay. Um, God says, Samuel, I want you to know that they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so God says, give them what they want. And uh, what they wanted was Saul. And so God let them have King Saul. And Saul, of course, as we know, was the kind of the biggest disaster to ever hit the nation of Israel. But like I say, when God says yes, he jumps in with both feet. And God says, you know what? I'm going to select King number two. It's going to be David. And I'm going I'm to make David, the kind of king who points forward uh, to the to the Messiah, to the coming of Jesus. God doesn't simply say, you want a temple? Fine, have a temple. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. You want a king? Fine. Uh, go ahead and have a king. And when it all blows up in your face, I'm going to be sitting over here. I'm going to be watching, uh, kind of smirking at you. And then I'm going to come and say, I told you so. God's not like that. He's not pouty. He's not immature. Um, You know, he doesn't take his ball and go home. When God says, okay, when God says, yes, he jumps in with both feet. So these are, these are illustrations of how God accommodates. He stoops and he steps in and he accommodates these fallen people and accommodates these, these, these institutions that the people want in their fallenness, and uh, he does so to, to stay engaged with the people, to stay in relationship with them, even though um, it makes him appear less beautiful than he really is. Even though it, it's, it's, it can be confusing, he can be misunderstood in that. But he does it out of love to stay in relationship to move people forward in his redemptive agenda. And you know, it's interesting, if you, if you just kind of jump into the middle of the Old Testament and you start reading, you would think, man, God, God loves the temple. He's really into this temple, or God loves kings. He's like anointing kings and he's blessing kings and he's leading and directing and, and, and all of that. Um, you look at Jesus, you say, wow, Jesus is really passionate about the temple. My father's house will be a house of prayer and so on. But when you go back to the beginning, what you see is is no, God is not into kings he 's not into temples. this is God accommodating he 's accommodating these fallen people he 's stepping, stooping, and accommodating people um, in this fallen um, world uh, system and accommodating these fallen people it 's the principle of accommodation being worked out. I think you could say the same thing about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Um, the sacrificial system, the slaughter of animal animals, was not God's plan. It wasn't his design. You know, I honestly, as an animal lover, I read the Old Testament, and it's it's hard to read about the slaughter of all these thousands, perhaps millions of animals, and the, the gore, and the waste, and... and um, the, the, the death of all these animals, it's a difficult thing to read. And, and some might say, well, why did God design such a system? Well, the answer is, uh, he didn't. Uh, God didn't design that. In fact, you know, we talked about the nation of Israel being culturally conditioned. They had uh, neighboring nations that surrounded them. And those neighboring nations were offering uh, animal sacrifices to their gods before uh, the law was ever given by Moses. In fact, the nation of Israel itself were offering sacrifices to goat demons before uh, the law was ever given. And so, it's as if God says, "Okay, since you're already doing this, if you're already kind of set on doing this, um, you know, let's put some parameters around it." And so, He inspires the book of Leviticus. And let's have it pointing somewhere. Let's have it pointing to, um, you know, to Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And so we know that, you know, God was not, uh, he didn't desire those offerings. He didn't, he wasn't pleased with them. In fact, we read that in Hebrews chapter 10. We read in Hebrews 10, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. And so those who hold this view that in the violence of the Old Testament, God is grieved. They would say, you know, of of the violence in the Old Testament, they would say, well, yeah, God's involved in it. He's commanding it. But this is God stooping and stepping and accommodating this already warring people. Um, He's He's accommodating the the existing warring impulses of the day, and God is saying, "Okay, if this is how you're going to be, how can I s- uh, step in? How can I use this for, um, you know, to work out my punishment? How can I use this to to work out my blessing? Uh, how can I use this to work out the uh, the plan of redemption going forward?" So, you know. Um, we, we look at these things, you know, kings, that was not God's heart. Uh, the temple, that was not God's heart. The uh, sacrifice of animals was not God's heart. The violence of the Old Testament, not God's heart. In each of these things, what we see is God stooping and stepping and accommodating uh, people in their fallenness to stay in relationship with them and to move um, his redemptive plan forward. And so, in these things, you know, God, God uses them, He's engaged in them for a season, but He's grieving as He does it. He's, he's engaged with tears in His eyes. It's not His heart. There's a story told um, by a pastor, uh, Greg Boyd. He's a pastor in Minnesota, and he tells a story, it's a true story, about a missionary couple. And um, this missionary couple, they go to uh, a country in Central Africa, it's a tribal people where they had had very little, if any, contact with the civilized world. It was a tribal people that practiced a very barbaric uh, butchery called female circumcision, or sometimes called female mutilation, a a barbaric uh, practice where uh, they would take young girls and perform this, this um, horrible surgery basically for the purpose of um, elevating the property status of males. And so this missionary couple, they go to this tribe in Central Africa, this tribe that practiced this uh, female um, circumcision, and they uh, want to take the gospel uh, to this tribe. And so they live with them. They identify with them. They want to earn their trust. They want to begin to build bridges and earn the right to be heard. And so for three years, this, this um, missionary couple had to, they had to tolerate this very horrific practice of female mutilation. It would have done them no good if they got their day one and just confronted that head on and say, you need to stop this barbaric practice. They would have had no voice um, with which to, to do that. They would not have been heard. They had no relationship. Their ministry would have started before it ever began. And so for three years, they had to look like they condoned it, this practice, so that they could eventually bring the gospel and along with the gospel, bring an understanding of the unsurpassable worth of all people, including these young girls, and so that that behavior would be abolished. Well, after about um, a year and a half, about 18 months in, this missionary couple, um, they have enough rapport with these people to where they can begin to provide proper surgical equipment for them, scalpels, and the techniques of of sterilization. So that as these tribal people are performing these barbaric and horrific surgeries, they're using proper tools, so at least there's not more damage being done than is necessary. And those tools are sterilized, so there's not like rampant infection like there had been uh, previously. Now you think of it, if you'd have, um, you know, if you'd have kind of parachuted in at the 18 month mark, you would have seen these missionaries providing scalpels to these tribes, uh, to these tribal peoples to perform these barbaric, horrific surgeries. You would have seen them uh, teaching methods of sterilization of this equipment so that they could be reused for more surgeries. you would have said those missionaries are evil. They're barbaric people. they are twisted, sinful, evil, awful people. But after three years, the first of many tribal people uh, surrender their lives to Jesus and uh, eventually the whole tribe came, to Jesus. And as they did that, they repented of this barbaric practice of female mutilation. And so this missionary couple who themselves, you know, appeared to condone, they appeared complicit. What we find is that they were actually heartbroken the whole time. They were stooping accommodating people in their sinfulness so that they could stay in relationship with them so that they could ultimately reveal a better way, the way of love, the way of God's love. And that's exactly what God does. He stoops and he steps into our barbaric, sin-filled world. And he plays roles that are alien to him because he loves us. And he appears complicit and he appears to condone, but all the while his heart is breaking. He is grieving. He's stooping. He's accommodating us in our sin until we can see his love. And now looking at that uh, through the lens of Jesus, we can, through the lens of Jesus, we can see what what is true about the heart of God and what is not true. About the heart of God. I want to give you just a a couple of verses and then uh, we'll close. This is John chapter 1, verse 18. Pastor Dave read this for us um, at the beginning of the talk. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John, as he writes this gospel, um, you know, says no one has ever seen God. John has a very good understanding of the Old Testament. He understands the Old Testament very well. God, John understands that there have been uh, theophanies in the Old Testament, multiple appearances of God in the Old Testament. John would have known that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Uh, God would have, uh, John would have known that, you know, Moses is said to have talked with God as one talks face to face. John would have known that God had appeared in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Uh, John would have known that you know Moses talked uh, uh, to God as he appeared in a burning bush. John would have known that Ezekiel saw God as a wheel. Uh, so John would have known all of this. John would have known that God is kind of a constantly appearing uh, in the Old Testament. He's got a very good understanding of the Old Testament. But he says no one. No one, that includes everyone, no one has seen God. That includes Joshua, that includes Moses, that that includes Ezekiel. No one has ever seen God. But when Jesus comes, Jesus is the one who makes him known. In Jesus, we now see God, John says. Uh, Just notice that last phrase in this verse, has made him known. Jesus has made him known. That's the Greek word exigeo. Um, from which we get our our word exegete. Uh, To exegete means to make something clear, to to lay it all out, to, to, to make it completely understandable we use that word when we talk about scripture. So Pastor Dave, when he he preaches a sermon and goes through a passage of scripture, we say that he is exegeting that passage of scripture. He's laying it all out. He's making it all clear. He's he's, um, identifying um, the meaning and just uh, uh, pointing it all out. Well, in this verse, John says that it's Jesus who is exegeting God. It's Jesus who's who's laying it all out, who's making it all understandable, who's, who's pointing it all out, making it all visible. Jesus exe- exegetes God. And so whether, you know, as you think about those three ways, those three schools of thought of how to uh, understand and to see the violence of the Old Testament, that God is glorified, or God is garbled, or God is grieving, uh, maybe you see yourself lining up in one uh, more than the other two of those. Again, there's wonderful, uh, smart, brilliant Jesus followers, people who love Jesus and love the scripture in each of those three um, schools of thought. But here's what we do know for sure. We do not see God's heart. We do not see God's essence. We don't see God, until we look into the face of Jesus, we do know that Jesus Himself says the same thing in John chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus says, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only He has seen the Father. Later in uh, John chapter 14, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the definitive representation of the heart of God. So what is God like? Look at Jesus. In fact, you've never seen God, John says. You've never seen God until you look into the eyes of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you have... Revealed yourself to us in creation. We see you in the things that have been made. The heavens declare your glory. We read in your word. And you've revealed yourself to us in your word. We see you in the pages of scripture. But thank you most of all that we see you clearly, perfectly, in high definition, fully exegeted, in Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, that you came and stooped and stepped into this fallen world, that you were willing to appear less beautiful than you really are, willing to be misunderstood, willing even to look complicit, dying a a criminal's death on the cross, all so we could see the love of the Father. You went all the way to the cross and you died in our place. Thank you, Jesus, that as we gaze upon you, as we look into your eyes, we truly, truly see the heart of the Father. Amen.